most businesses are on the brink of success constantly, forever. It's usually just a few moves. And if you tackle these three horsemen, one of them, it's going to spring it forward. Because if you can sustain years and years and just keep on getting by, you're this close to breaking through. Hey, podcast listener, even if you are alone in your entrepreneurial journey, know that today, right now in your earbuds, you are joined by thousands of entrepreneurs from all around the globe seeking to grow better, more profitable location-independent businesses. If you'd like to learn more about what we do and download our entire back catalog, check out tropicalmba.com. Happy Thursday morning, everybody. Welcome to the podcast. I'm incredibly excited to introduce to you one of my favorite business authors on today's podcast. His ideas and books have played a formative role in our business in the past few years, and I want to describe why And he's coming by the show to share some of his best ideas. Today's guest is none other than author of Profit First, Mike McCallowitz, among many other books. Here's why I'm interested in these topics. I think a lot of us are in the messy middle. I'm going to put myself in this category. I'm trying to figure this stuff out. I'm after the thousand day principle. I'm making a good living from my business, but I don't have adults running my business. I'm running. The the kids are in charge. I'm in charge of my business. I don't have a CEO. I don't have a COO. I don't have people making enormous money running my business, preparing it for an exit. I'm not on the board. I'm not an advisor. I'm in there running it. And I need practical ideas and frameworks to get things done and to create results. And I think today's author really gets to the heart of that struggle for those of us in the messy middle. How do you take decades worth of operational theory and anecdotal ideas about how businesses work and sum them down to ideas that are practical, clear, and applicable to our situations? Mike McCallowitz has done that through his incredible book about finance, Profit First. Forget about finance, just Profit First. Create five bank accounts and make profit a priority in your business. Everything follows from there. How about his book on operational theory, clockwork? Optimize your business around the most important function in your business. Yeah, I mean, KPI, OKR, this, that, and the other thing. But how about the most fundamental, simple idea? Here's another one. I was talking about business strategy with Taylor Pearson this morning at the cafe. And heaven forbid you type in business strategy and how to create a business strategy into Google because you're going to get from every world-class company has a different idea of how to create a strategy. And it's extremely academic topic. But Mike boils it down in his book, The Pumpkin Plan. Hey, in lieu of some fancy idea of how you're going to create a market strategy or how you're going to read seven powers and figure out what your power is, how about focus on your best clients? And he gives us a framework to do that. That's a way to de-risk your market strategy. It's an out-of-the-box kit strategy that works for nine out of 10 small businesses. And anyway, I think that's what Mike is great at. And I'm excited for him to come on the pod today. He did not disappoint, by the way. Incredibly engaging, charismatic, and thoughtful guy. And I started out the conversation by sort of asking him where these ideas come from. Like, how does he do it? Is he reading fancy books and simplifying them? And basically what he said is like, look, I'm meeting founders. I am a founder. And I'm trying to figure out for myself, like what we do and don't understand. And so he's coming from this very like practical rooted, non-theoretical background. And I think that really shines through in the usefulness in his work. I'm incredibly excited to present to you today one of my favorite business authors, Mike McCallowitz.
So a couple of days, guys, in Bend, Oregon, I live in New Jersey, hop on a Uber in the middle of this crazy snowstorm trying to catch a flight. It actually wasn't even Uber, it was a limo driver and it's his business. So the second someone says they own a business, I'm like, oh, I'm all in. <laughs> ask him question, question, question. How do you handle celebrities? And one thing he shared was really cool. He's like, recently The Voice TV show was out here and Katy Perry and Lionel Richie and stuff. There's one celebrity here all the time, but I will not share who that is because they're under contract with us. And so we maintain confidentiality. And I was really impressed by this guy because I would want to blurt it out the name. Sure. But then he says this one line and I'm like, I got to write this one down. He goes, you know, like he almost like slows the car down, kind of looks back in the middle of a snowstorm and he goes, do you know what it is about celebrities? He goes, they're ordinary people with extraordinary jobs. And he goes, most people just think they're extraordinary people. He goes, that's not the case. He goes, they're totally ordinary people with extraordinary jobs. That's the line. All of a sudden, there was this awareness that when we put a celebrity on a pedestal, we're really putting their opportunity or their job on a pedestal. That someday, 10 years or 20 years from now, or maybe never, but someday I think we'll go into a book as a line that I learned from an entrepreneur during a snowstorm in Bend, Oregon. This knack for doing that, for distilling and compressing, you compress yeah. things into these pithy, and I'm going to ask you about a bunch of them today. Were you like that when you were an operator of these larger companies that you ran back in the day? Yes. And were you the insufferable CEO writing the Sunday email? No. That was... <laughs> no. I mean, I, I, at times I did. At, at times I had that Gordon Gecko. I don't know if you ever saw Wall Street. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. I was like, oh, you know, greed is good. Work your ass off and expect the same from everyone. I, I did have that belief for a period of time. I call those my d days. Um, <laughs> and I hope, it sounds funny, I hope I'm d not physically, but I hope that emotion's gone away. And I hope I'm embracing the whole person that I work with and, and my colleagues and myself. But when it comes to this pithiness or condensed presentation or simplification of stuff, it's because of a weakness I have. I struggle with complexity. I have been diagnosed because my two in-laws are both therapists. And they're like, oh, Mike, you have hypomania. I'm like, what's that? They're like, well, there's this hypermania where it's uncontrollable. And there's hypomania where there's this elevated energy state and it can be channeled, but it's hard and you get kind of distracted and stuff. I'm like, I love it. I have hypomania. And they're like, you're the first person ever who said they love it. But what I re realized, Dan, is that if there's something complex and detailed, it is really difficult for me to stay on topic. So what I inherently do is like, okay, grab this stuff as best I can for as long as I can and condense it down. Because if I ever have to repeat this, I'm going to struggle. So I try to always take these complex ideas and boil them down. One example is uh, by my book, Profit First, I struggle with accounting. I understand it. And if I make an extraordinary effort, I can do it once, but it's not sustainable for me. So I look at it and say, what are all the essential components or what are the few essential components? What can be boiled off? And it came down to this one concept that if we take our profit first, pay yourself first, hide it from the business, your business can be forced to run within the expense line. And that's the simple solution. And while it's not the entire solution, it's the 95 percenter. And so in every element of my business and my life, I'm like, what is the one or two essential things that if I do that, it does the 95 percent? And that's, that's good enough for me. Let's jump into profit first then, which is your probably most famous book. Yeah, it is. Me, the yeah. flagship of the brand. And I love that celebrity line, by the way. That's really cool. Here's my question about Profit First, because I love the idea. I don't do it. So 
I need to talk myself into this here. We'll the get perfect, you. By the end of today's episode, you'll be doing it. It's my goal. Let's do it. Okay. The perfect size for your business. It will happen naturally when you take your profit first. You will reverse engineer all the elements of your business. Yep. And as Jason Fried says, the right size will find you. Yeah. Let's get into there. So I'll start off with the traditional common but not working approach of entrepreneurs. So contextually in the US, 32 million small businesses. A small business is a company that does $25 million in annual revenue or less. Globally, there's over 300 million. So you, okay, that's the, what we're working with. According to a research that came out of a bank, it was US Bank, they did in conjunction with the SBA, 83% of businesses are surviving check by check, which means regardless of the volume of cash flow, if they're doing millions a year or hundreds of thousands or whatever the number is, they're all struggling. So the first perspective that's important to know is regardless of the income level, businesses still struggle. So I researched, why is this the case? Because my feeling was, I can sell my way out of this. If I just got one more client, if I just got whatever it was. Well, there's a concept called Parkinson's law. It's a theory that as a resource expands its availability, our consumption for it expands at the same linear rate. If you and I said, hey, let's go into a contract on something. Give me a week, I'll get the proposal or contract to you. It'll likely take me that week because that's the time allotted. Same guys, same conversation, same parameters, but we say, I'll get to you in the next hour. i get to you in an hour or two because now there's compressed time, there's an urgency. Well, as money gets compressed, our behavior is to work within what we have now and we start finding innovative ways to sustain. As money expands, more revenue, we become lazy with the money. It's like, we keep spending it. It's available anyway. I've been thinking about running this Facebook ads and now I can afford it. And so... It's almost uncanny, but no matter what the income rate is for a business, the income volume, we're spending at that rate. So this guy comes full circle to your comment. And when we take our profit first, what we're doing is it's the pay yourself first principle. We're securing profitability. And say I want my business to have a 10% profit top line. I make a million dollars a year in revenue, $100,000 over the years being set aside. In a bank account. In a bank account. Oh, yeah. This yep. is, oh, yeah. That's a great point. This is a cash-based system. This is not an accounting system. It ain't done on a spreadsheet. Yep. There's another behavioral reason is if you do that, there's no impact or consequence. But when you start moving and hiding actual money, you feel it. So we take over the time, we take that $100,000 aside. It's hidden cash from you. Now you have 900000 over the year. So you have a, a million-dollar business. You say 10% is going to be our profit for whatever reason. You determine that. Yep. That's up to the founder to decide what the profit is. Yeah. Okay, well, let's talk about that too. And this, I'll tell you, if you want to try profit first, one of the things I share with people is start slow and let it grow. If you want to go to the gym and start exercising and you haven't done it in years, don't throw 300 pounds on that bench press. You start off by just stretching. Yeah. Profit first. What we're going to do is start with 1% of income. And what we found is 1% is such a low number there's no consequence on how you've historically run the business. If you make 100000 a year versus you know, 99000 a year, it's not going to have much of a difference at all on the operation of the business. Most high consequential, at the end of the year, you got now, in this case, $1,000. So what I tell people is if you want to start slow, set up just one bank account. It's got to be a bank account. And allocate just 1% of any deposit comes in, hide it away. Now you're doing profit first. Over time, you build into the more sophisticated stuff. Wow. Do you think it's relevant if you have a high-level finance person on your team? No, it can actually be detrimental. I mean, and I don't mean it negatively. 
a high-level finance person probably has been trained on this is the way things are done down at the farm. They've gone through all that. And so we have this established belief that you got to have the accounting system. You got to know the cash flow statement, the balance sheet. You got to translate these metrics. We inherently bring complexity. What we need to do is reverse back out to the most simple form. Now, Profit First is a cash management system. So you're doing this at the bank account. It doesn't affect your accounting. Your accounting still works the same way. Right. But the accounting is interpretation of the tea leaves. This is actually managing the actual tea. That's interesting. <laughs> so, yeah, so the high level person, just be, I think they'll inherently say this is crazy or it's unnecessary. And I don't know if that's really the case. One of the things I've always thought about money is its liquidity in our behavior is so interesting. You could choose to put energy into a task like marketing, or you could pay Facebook. Like cash just kind of substitutes for energy. That's and right. now I think what the behavioral approach, why I think it's so fascinating is you're leveraging that energy because now it hurts to pull it out of a pool. I'm not I'm mixing my metaphors, but it's no, just no, like, right. like for the account finance person to say, hey, I need to pull out of your profit first account to pay this vendor. It's like, ooh, that hurts. Yeah, that hurts. And if you're pulling from your profit account, inherently, there's something wrong with the business. We have to pull from profit. What's wrong with the business that we can't run off the expenses that we want? If I want a 10% profit, I have to work within this. One of my favorite stories about profit first happened seven years ago, five years ago, got a letter in the mail and there was a baseball card of this guy wearing this yellow tuxedo. It says the Savannah Bananas are doing profit first. If you've ever heard of them, there's- Yeah, everybody knows about this minor league baseball team that- They're crazy. Kind of flipped the model. Yeah. Yeah. So in part, profit first was part of the flip. Now, I've come very good friends with Jesse Cole and Emily Cole. That's the founder. They are very innovative. They have an extraordinary mission to focus on fans and to build family. They want people leaving the cell phone behind and, and ditching the TV and spending time as a family. But they started doing profit first. They're a minor league baseball team. And historically, they make a huge amounts of profit now. But when you start off a minor league team, you don't make any money. It's more of a trophy than, than an income source. They yeah. started taking their profit first. And they said, well, gosh, we don't have enough money to maintain our scoreboard if we take our profit first. And they did the right thing. They said, oh, that means we can't have a scoreboard. How do you run a baseball game without a scoreboard? And their, one of their innovations was, we're going to have people in the stands, like a boxing ring, walk around the scores between each inning and get <laughs> the fans engaged. And that turned into, we're going to have the oldest people in the stands become our cheerleading team, the grandma bananas. You'd be literally 80 years or older and you'd become a cheerleader. And the crowd lost their mind. Like, this is amazing. What's the best part about Profit First, in my opinion, is not only do you drive profitability, not only do you define what the company must work within, it triggers innovation, thinking outside yeah. the box. I love that. For some reason, I thought of uh, Jack White and the White Stripes. We were talking about guitars and, you know, his music was always so much better in the context of just one drummer who couldn't play the drums that well. And he needed to decide that creative constraint, I think, led to better songs than when he was surrounded by all his buddies who the were best. world-class yeah, musicians. And, yeah. Profit is not an event. It's a habit. So your pitch for profit first, I, I just wrote down, do profit first. <laughs> but do, yeah, just do that one account, 1% by tomorrow. That's my big ask of you, Dan, and anyone listening in. It has to be done by tomorrow because what happens the day after tomorrow is another priority presents itself and then we lose out. Have you ever made this connection? One of the things I love about the book is I personally got out of debt by drinking the Dave Ramsey Kool-Aid and he had a similar system that I use in my wallet, which is I had four different piles of cash. I would go to the bank after every paycheck 
and I would put the cash. One was golf. One was yep. like entertainment and eating. One was groceries and one was bills. And then I pre-saved the money in my account before taking that yeah, cash Yeah, incurred out. the expense before the expense really happened. That's exactly right. And it worked. It worked. I got out of debt. <laughs> my wife and I, so we do a version of Profit First at home. I love Dave Ramsey's work. This is the envelope system. And I think one thing that's yeah, important the envelope is, system. is Prop First is not new and Dave Ramsey's work's not new. These are interpretations of a foundational truth, which is the envelope system, which was started, I believe, back as early as like the hundreds, like two or three hundred. There's, there's records of people dividing up stuff into different forms. But my wife and I, we're going to need a new roof for a house. The thing is, I don't know when. I just know roofs don't go forever. And they have roughly a 20-year lifespan. And so what I said is like, we better start saving for a roof. Now, the other thing too, this is just an anomaly, but there was a, this interesting research around something when you don't know when something is going to happen, what you do is look at how long something has already existed and double it. And it's usually the life of that thing. It's the best way to approximate when you have no other variables. New York City, its current state has been around for a hundred years. So the logical conclusion is- it'll, The Lindy principle. Yeah. Lindy principle. So a hundred more years. So I'm like, oh, we've been in the house for seven years and as the roof is fine, we probably have seven more years. And so I have us now in a seven-year program to buy a new roof. So I'm, I'm incurring those expenses before it comes. And when the roof comes in seven years or maybe later, the cash will be reserved for that. I love it. I want to jump forward. Something you said reminded me of this concept that stuck with me and it's called the queen bee role. Oh, yeah. And the QBR activity is the one that supports your brand promise. It's yes. one you're known for in your customer base. Yes. What I thought was so fascinating is this concept popped up in the middle of a book, essentially about operational theory. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But then you were asserting this concept that figuring out this central role in the company is something that we all need to do. And it really, I gave a presentation on that to my team. So I want to hear where that came from. And if you could lay out the concept for us. You're referencing my book, Clockwork. And there's the subtitle, which I think is significant, is Design Your Business to Run Itself. The challenge is most small businesses are crutched by the owner, meaning the owner keeps it hobbling along. And if the owner doesn't show, the business is in jeopardy. And that's not a sustainable business. So how do we get the business owner owning a business and not operating a business? One of the core theories, by the way, is this concept of fork vacation. And what I challenge people to do in businesses I invest in and stuff, I'm like, one year from now, you are going on a four-week consecutive vacation. You're leaving your business. And we're committing to this. This is not like hypothesis. This is real. How do you feel? And they're like, <laughs> I'm like, right. We got to start working on the process and stop doing things because you are going to be gone. And that's a, the ultimate test. In that sequence now of working on the business, what we look for is what is the most important function or activity is happening within the business that supports this brand promise. At the end of the day, if you go to your customers, your best customers, and say, what are we doing right? They'll usually say one or two things. They won't say the thousand things that you're doing that they don't even know of. We are being judged by our customers on the response time or some quality of the service or our communication. Whatever that common theme is, that's your brand promise. And you can learn from them or you can designate. You can say, we want to be known for delivering happiness, whatever it is. Once you make that promise, then we say, of all the activities we do, which of our activities is the most, by definition, most can only be one, what is the most important activity that's making that promise a reality? What's manifesting it? That is what I call the queen bee role. Now, this is 
from biomimicry. I looked at Mother Nature, beehives. The most important function a beehive has, they collect pollen, they, they do all these different things, is laying eggs. That The survival of the colony depends on laying eggs. So the brand promise is sustainability of the colony. And the question is, of all the activities, which one supports the most? Laying eggs. It just so happens in a beehive, there's one bee, the queen bee, who lays the eggs. But she's expendable. If she's failing to do it, the bees will eat her or destroy her and spawn a new queen bee. What I'm saying in a business, and this is where the analogy breaks down a little bit, it doesn't have to be one person. It's one role, one function. What are the laying eggs in your organization? Ideally, you have multiple people that are contributing to that so that if one person is ill or unavailable, it continues on unabated. But we need to know that one core function, and it's always the priority. Most businesses do not know what their core function is, what that primary activity is. Most don't even know a big promise. And they therefore say, everything's important, which dilutes them. You have to master one thing. One thing that I think is enduring about the concept is it might not be something that you're charging for exactly. That's I right. wonder if you could give some examples of, do you have some in your companies that you've come across over the years? Of oh, surely. How it works. Surely. So when we go back to the Savannah Bonanza, it just pops in my mind. And I didn't document their situation in my book necessarily, but we can use that story. So their promise is to deliver family fun. And they do a lot of things. There's an actual game that goes on. They now have actually created their own rules for a game. So for some consumers, the promise could have been a winning season or a competitive team or whatever it may be. So they first have to make a choice. And you have to stick with that choice because if you keep oscillating, well, we're going to win, but we're also going to be fun. We're going to be this. You start diluting the consumer's perception of you. Like, what are we? A good example of someone that's committed to family fun in the sports industry is the Globetrotters. Harlem Globetrotters. This is the next iteration of the Harlem Globetrotters, baseball instead of basketball. Once they determined it's family fun, they now said, well, of all the activities we do, what most promotes family fun? Well, they have tons of things going on. They got jugglers and they got dancing teams, including people from the stands that are dancing. They went through all this stuff and said, my gosh, of all the things we do, what is most important is the creation of new stuff. Because if it's always the same event, you come for one, you've seen the show, why come again? Family fun is something that happens over and over again. So every experience has to be a brand new show. So every week, I think for now, maybe four hours or five hours, Jesse Cole, the owner, along with Emily Cole, the co-owner, and 50 other people sit there and they just ideate. It's a what if. And the more outrageous the idea, the better. They said, what if when we're throwing baseballs, they were on fire? What if we had the tallest pitcher in the world? The pitcher's going to be 20 feet tall and they put him on stilts and what are these what-if ideas? My favorite part about that is they have a pair of sneakers. And after one of the games they had um, in Savannah, one of the fans left their sneakers. They don't know the circumstances, but they took them. One chair is left in that room empty with the sneakers sitting on it. That sneakers represents family fun. It's such a mind-blowing experience that even forgetting your shoes is worth it. And they're like, we're doing it for that fan. And so that became their core function, the Queen Bee role. One of the themes of clockwork is that founders have trust issues. I'm wondering if we were to simplify that down to it, the core reason, is it just that we're not paying good enough people to work for us? Or is there something more to it? Definitely not the pay. Here's the challenge I've identified is when we start a business, when we build a business as owner, there's a level of expectation for the business, the performance. It's how we see ourselves. 
And the business we see is a reflection of ourselves, our level of commitment. Our organization, usually perception, is not, does not perform to my level. So what the owner does then is insert themselves and say, we got to do better at this. I'm going to step in. It's called the superhero syndrome. We're going to save the day, usually with mass destruction behind us that no one talks about. I feel called out and defensive right now. <laughs> oh, do you really? <laughs> I'm just joking around, but I can relate to what you're saying. Like, yeah, totally. You have like an arbitrary standard of kind of excellence. It's totally arbitrary. It's my standard. And, and it's also moving, but we don't see it moving because we're the one on the ship. So as it moves, we're moving with it. So at my eye level, it's always the same. I've decided right now today that we're not meeting this standard that I feel, basically. Right. So what happens is, so I look and say, here's my standard. We're not meeting the standard. What's wrong with our company? And I try to superhero our way through it. That's the mistake. What we have to do is remove ourselves from the business to find what the homeostasis is for the business. What is the business's natural standard? Then our job is not to pull it up. It's to come under it and build structure. What can we do to keep building it to achieve whatever that vision may be? I will tell you this. When I left my company for my first four-week vacation, because that's the best way, the removal of the owner is the best way to find that homeostasis and to improve the business. This was six years ago. I went to Perth, Australia, because it's literally halfway around the plant. It's 12 hours, 8 o'clock in the morning, 8 o'clock at night. I can't talk to someone. So I go to Perth, and the first few days was just panic. Like, is the business even there? It's probably burning down. I come back after four weeks. I meet with our team. Kelsey's our president. Business is still here. Some surprising wins had happened too. I'm like, we got a new client. I then said, on a one to 10, how badly do you need me back? 10, stop talking, start working. We're in real trouble. One, go back to Perth. And they gave me like a 1.1. And the point one was like, because they said, Mike, you're okay. We like you, but we don't need you. And the most interesting thing that came out of the conversation is for the first time, some of my colleagues said in their entire careers, they felt truly empowered. I gave them the keys and said, Drive the car. You got this. And uh, if there's bumps and bruises, we're, problems we have, we're going to come back and we'll work on those things. And I'm going to leave again. By always being there, we're showing, we're demonstrating to our employees, we don't trust you with the keys to the kingdom. And therefore, there's trust compromise. By leaving and empowering, we're showing trust. And it isn't going to be perfect, but I'll tell you, us doing it ain't close to perfect either, even though we think it is. It's not even close. So that's what we do annually, four weeks away consecutively. It's interesting because something everybody wants is a four-week vacation. Every founder wants that. Yeah, we say we want that, yeah. But it's not even about the reward. I was saying, a four-week vacation is not about you getting a vacation. It's about your business getting a vacation from you. Yeah. It's like going on a fast. It is. You know, it's like this powerful, regenerative opportunity. I spoke with a guy a few months ago who sold his business for $50 million. And he's like, you know what I should have done? Left the business for a month. I made a mistake because... I just thought that I was like holding up this house of cards and now I could have experienced everything I wanted to experience through this transaction, which is distance. Yeah, 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 right. Just by walking away. I should have just done that. It would have been more affordable. I would still have the business, you know? It's a powerful behavioral system. And the best thing is when you start doing that in return, you can still be an employee to the business, which I am. And I can match what my passions or interests are into the work I do. So. I don't do any accounting. I don't do any of that stuff. I love to be a spokesperson and a cheerleader. So I'll do the interviews and I'll go on stage and speak because I love that. And that, that's a contribution to the business. And I'll cheer us when we need some cheerleading. And that's the things I love to do. My favorite thing was when I got back though from that fortification, Kelsey said, I, I also discovered something. She's like, every employee, I have multiple businesses, but this office is tiny. We have eight of us here. Kelsey said, everyone needs to take a fortification. 
And I asked why. She goes, because it forces redundancy. When Jenna, for example, who's our primary copywriter, when she leaves for four weeks, it's paid vacation, by the way. And it's a great benefit. I think it's attractive to people because you don't get it elsewhere. We have to have redundancy where Andrea or someone else can back up that role. And inevitably, people are going to leave or not be available for the business for some reason. And in small businesses in particular, we get in real trouble because we have siloed people into one role and we don't have a backup. So now everyone gets a fortification. There's backups for everyone, including the speaker dude. We have other people who do speeches on Profit First. And my other topics, for redundancy for me, should I not be able to speak? Incredible. The pumpkin plan, the big idea in the pumpkin plan, and I think it's useful hearing it for me because I might remember it wrong, is that basically it's better to focus on your best clients and growing them versus just indiscriminately getting more clients. The reason that this is profound for me is that there's some uncertainty that your best clients will beget more money, but it's easy to imagine that more clients will get you more money. Yeah. And so this is the trap that we always fell into in quote strategy meetings where we'd always just say, we just need more. We just need more. It was so many months where we weren't getting more. Yeah. (laughs) And somehow this coincided with me reading the pumpkin plan. So can you take that and then with that context, frame up what, what you've seen or what's been powerful for you about sharing that message? I would suggest we don't need more, we need better. And what Pumpkin Plan is, is a interpretation of the Pareto Principle, the 80-20 rule, and I converted it into a sequence of steps. What we do with the Pumpkin Plan, which coincidentally is my favorite book, was I had the most fun writing that book and I just love it. And what I found is that a minority of our customers represent the majority of our profitability. As we take on a more diverse set of customers, inherent to diverse customers is diverse demands, which means we have to dilute our abilities. We can't be elite at anything. The best analogy I have that, that people I think can relate to is a doctor. Imagine going to your, you have a heart attack or some kind of event, cardiac event, and you, you go to the hospital. Doctor one comes up and says, I'm really diverse. You know, I'm looking forward to doing some hard work. I also, I'm trying to be a brain surgeon. I'm a you know, geriatric. It, all this stuff. What is your confidence in hiring that doctor? It's probably pretty low. You know, Dr. Chu comes up and she says, uh, all I do is cardiac surgery. Your specific event, I've addressed that 900 times already. I'm really efficient. I charge a massive premium for what I do and I have a 99.9% success rate. Who do you choose? The first diverse and probably cheaper option or do you choose the second? Of course, the second. When our life is on the line, we will seek out the premium provider. When a customer sees a service offering as life-altering, they will seek out the premier provider. The businesses that become generalists, I'll serve all clients, by default can't be specialists. They will attract generic customers who just want the cheap, easy, convenient solution. But in any market, whoever you're selling to, there is a percentage of customers, usually that 20%, that's the 80-20 rule, who are looking for the premier provider. And they will specifically avoid, either consciously or not, but they will avoid the generalist and seek out the specialist. So the pumpkin plan is how to become a specialist, which will attract the best customers and attract the premium. What do you say to people who are like, well, you know, I want to build a mass market solution and we have these images of scale and for just a premium provider. What do you say to founders who 
I tell them, do your effing research. So to become a mass provider, the only path I've seen is being a specialist. I'll give you some historical examples. Procter & Gamble, multi-billion dollar, hundreds of billion dollar corporation is massive. They started off by selling two products. They sold candles and soap. Then they discovered that was too diverse. They dropped the candles, only <laughs> sold soap. But they became specialists in soap. They were the first company to make soap that could float. They sold it to the military, soldiers in World War I. You bathe in a pond or a stream. If that soap sinks, you lose it. And they catered to that market and they became really good at it. And then they started to expand. Microsoft, you know, more modern example. All they did was one thing. They made a product for IBM called MS-DOS and they dominated that space. And then they make gaming platforms and millions of things. What entrepreneurs often do is they look at where Amazon is today, who only sold books. But they look at Amazon today or Microsoft today and say, I want to be like that. Therefore, I need to do all these things. And that's not the pathway. You can't start off super broad because you dilute yourself. What these companies do is they become so good at something that they then have complementary products and offerings and they're separate divisions. And that's how they start expanding out. I think you're right. I think that's why the pumpkin plan is emotionally interesting. You talked about loving writing the book. There's this, it's almost like a pep talk for winning the battle right in front of you and mm -hmm. having some confidence that it will pay off versus taking the lazier route and expanding your fronts and fighting more skirmishes Yeah, and sort of hoping one, it's like a gambler's mentality versus a leadership mentality almost. Yeah, when I walk people through Pumpkin Plan and observe companies doing it, the payback is typically six months is the quickest, a year or two the longest. In, in most cases, where someone starts devoting themselves to a particular market and a particular solution for that market. Because it takes time for our reputation to get out there. Like that heart surgeon who does that first successful heart surgery doesn't have a, a thousand people come up and say, wow, you did the successful heart surgery, can I be next? They want to hear you did 900 of them. So in the beginning, it takes some time. The generalist, because they're attracting someone as a convenience purchaser, you're cheap, you're available, you're local. My general practitioner is 10 miles down the road. If he moves across the country, I'm not going anymore. But I'll pick, pick a new GP based upon, are they available? Are they good enough? They have an okay reputation? So being a generalist and fighting on many fronts is the easy path in the short term because you can get a customer really quickly because there's more customers there. The thing is, they're not good customers. They're the convenience buyers. And so it becomes a trap very quickly. I don't know when it happens, but sometimes it's at half a million dollars, sometimes a million. Rarely is it much beyond that, maybe a $2 million business. And they're like, I can't be a generalist anymore. We are so stretched thin. If you feel stretched thin, that's the indication of a generalist. One of the concepts you brought up was that I thought it was really fascinating because you sort of teased this idea that is the core of Fix This Next, which I think is really interesting distillation. You said that in the past, businesses had more clarity around particular revenue shelves and what they would do for growth. Yeah, yeah, And yeah. That, that's breaking down. Can you bring us into that world? That's very fascinating to me, but I don't know what you mean. Yeah. So historically, we meaning the pundits in the entrepreneurial space have taught and I adhere to and experience that things happen at different revenue stages. So when you're sub million dollars in revenue, there's a high dependency on the owner. Surely if you're sub 250, the owner is the business. As you start approaching a million, you got to hire usually a person or two historically. And you got to start bringing in some level of sophistication, usually external advisors, an accountant or 
bookkeeper, at least someone start giving guidance. That one to five level, particularly as you get closer and closer to five, historically was now you got to start bringing in a level of management. The owner better not be doing the work. They better be managing, but they also be hiring managers. Five to 10, you start bringing in a true leadership team. People who kind of start putting the X on the map of where we're headed and are working on the strategy. Like they are actually every day sitting down and saying, if we do this and that, we're projecting what we can do. And then getting the troops in alignment. Well, that's breaking down because you can find these stories of someone that has a YouTube channel that's crushing it and they're making, you know, seven million or $20 million a year. And it's literally one dude. So it used to be these thresholds of revenue that dictated your behavior. Now we have to just be more cognizant of what's the inherent need of a business that doesn't necessarily represent itself monetarily, but it represents itself in a different way. And, and I, in Fix This Next, put a pyramid structure, a translation, a loose translation of Maslow's hierarchy of needs. But the best analogy I can use is like a chain. There was a chain between me and you, Dan, we're pulling it, and our job is to make the chain stronger. The mistake that most business owners do is we say, well, make every link stronger and the chain will be stronger. And it's a mistake because the chain will continue to break just as easily until we, by happenstance, come across the weakest link. So instead, the right philosophy is if we're trying to make a chain stronger, first identify what the weakest link is. If you simply fix one link in the entire chain, the entire strength now level has improved to the next weakest link. We focus on that and improve that. And so now by sequencing what we do in the right order, the chain improves very rapidly. In these businesses, it's not, oh, because I achieved $5 million of revenue, here's what I do now. We keep on analyzing the chain to find the weakest link, fix that, regardless of the revenue size. So it's like a Maslow's hierarchy meets constraint theory sort of made simple. Yeah, that's exactly right. So it's just based upon Eli Goldratt's work, TOC, Theory of Constraints, based upon Maslow's work. There's some other elements in there too, but that's basically it. I think one of the key takeaways, which is a Maslowian concept, is for the human experience, foundationally says we have physiological needs. We need to drink water, eat food. And only if that's satisfied can we worry about safety needs like shelter and ultimately self-actualization. Well, in business, we have the same kind of foundational theory. If there's no sales, if there's no cash coming into the business, we don't have to worry about making you profitable. We're not even generating cash. Uh, forget efficiencies and, and taking that fortification. There's no money. We have to be breathing that air of cash creation. But on the flip side, Maslow also pointed out that we simply need adequate levels of water and food. You can actually take in too much water. You can eat too much food and it can kill you. You know, people drank themselves with water to death yeah. uh, because it's a system. You can actually sell your way to a death of an organization. It's one of my biggest frustrations to hear people say, oh, you can sell secures everything. I can sell my way out of this. No, no, no. Don't keep on drinking more and more water. We got to make sure that it's, it's going into the fibers of the muscle of this business. So let's sell to an adequate level where we can extract profit. Let's have profit to a level where we have enough runway where we can focus on efficiency and so forth. But as we move that forward, then we go back to the base again and say, now that we have a, more muscle in the business, now that we have more efficiency, let's amplify sales because we have a bigger muscle structure. And you keep on reiterate or iterating through this model. I mean, it sounds like a challenge for the founder because now they have to have all different kinds of roles potentially, whereas in the past, it might have been a little bit clearer in terms of management structure, what you're going to do. Now it sounds like we could be doing anything. We could have to be an operator, a salesperson. Could be, it could be. You may have to fill it. I, yes, that's true. I think your primary role becomes a seeker of what the biggest constraint is in the moment. I remember I went to a factory 
and that's the theory of constraints. It was a playset manufacturer, and this is for like communal playgrounds, like these big playsets you see. And it, it always inputs, and it gets to this final output, which was this huge set of play equipment. And what the guy said is his primary job, he, was, he operated the floor, his primary job was just to look where inventory was piling up. And he says, wherever inventory is piling up, that's our next bottleneck. And if I fix that link, things will start flowing faster there, but the next bottleneck will present itself. And that's kind of what we do as a business owner is instead of trying to make everything better in our business or even worse, I'm going to trust my gut and say, you know, this is what we're going to do today and this is what we're going to do tomorrow. We got to look at the data, what's actually happening. At the end of the day, I would say your business, just as much as mine, as much as any other business, is ultimately a manufacturer. We're taking raw input, needs, questions, concepts, and we're giving an output status. So maybe it's a yeah. report or maybe it's some final product, but there is a chain of events. It's a manufacturer. Our primary job in this case is where is stuff piling up? Where is it waiting the longest? Fix simply that to get the flow going there. And then the next bottleneck will present itself somewhere and fix that. And that's our primary job. Identify it. We may not know the fix or even be able to do it, but we can bring in experts or have our team work on it. We got to find it for sure. At the top of the episode, you talked about the vast majority of small businesses are essentially mediocre and don't have any pricing power in their markets. They can't harvest profits. They can't achieve any kind of scale. I'm trying to get a sense from your body of work. What is the fundamental diagnosis of that problem? Why yeah. do most businesses never achieve pricing power yeah, yeah, yeah. in their market? Do you have a sense for what the answer is? Yeah. There's these three common causes. I remember I was listening to like a health podcast, uh, Peter Atia, Dr. Atia, and he goes, there's a three horsemen of death. Like there's, a th you know, cancer, heart attack, and I can't remember the other ones. I was like, oh my God, this is the same in business. I do want to just change one phraseology because this is... Oh, I'm so excited for this. <laughs> because I did discover one thing that I've said for a long time that most businesses are in this constant mediocre state. Most businesses are on a constant brink of failure. Mm -hmm. And it's true. But I want to take it back. What I now discover is most businesses are on the brink of success constantly, forever. It's usually just a few moves. And if you tackle these three horsemen, one of them it's going to spring it forward. Because if you can sustain years and years and just keep on getting by, you're this close to breaking through. I love that setup. Here's what they are. The most common cause preventing them from massive success is they don't have a profit system. I'm a proponent for profit first. There's alternatives out there, but I find profit first is the most effective. So when I invest in a business, always get profit first in there. It causes this cascade effect. If you take your profit first, it starts revealing these couple spots we need to clean up. We're not pricing our services well. We have the wrong type of customer. It just reveals itself. That's the number one thing. The second most common thing is they haven't removed the owner, which is what we already talked about, from the operations of business. There's a dependency on the owner. They become this linchpin. They, usually the biggest bottleneck in the business is the owner themselves. So my second mission is get the owner to stop working in that side, side of that business. Stop them from doing stuff. Get them the hell out. And if we can get them out, then we find the homeostasis of the business, where kind of levels out. And now we can start figuring out actually how to operate this business like a business. So profit first, second is get owner out. And then the third thing is there's a concept I call the Pareto overlap. And it's a term I made up, but it's based on the Pareto principle. Real simply said, we can analyze our clients and identify that usually 20% of our clients are 
80% of our revenue or 80% of our profitability. And you can go through this. But also we have to look at your offerings and say, what are the few offerings that are 80% of the profitability? And then with these two columns, we determine the best customers buying your best stuff. We circle that and say, that's the heart of your organization. We have to defend and protect those clients at all costs with assure those products and services are delivered with absolute efficiency and professionalism to those clients. And if I just do that, business is going to be better. The second part I do in this third section, they look at the bottom of that model. Who are the 20% of customers who just suck? They're total jackwads. They're always complaining, never satisfied, don't pay on time. And intersect that with what are my lowest quality products or offerings, meaning they don't yield any profitability, probably costing me money. The intersection of worst customers, worst products, circle that, and I write the word poison. We have to spit out this poison as fast as possible from the organization. And that will inherently bring health. Protect the heart, spit out the poison. This model continues on. There's actually more overlaps. But those are the things I look at. And it's always that sequence. I'm not saying every business is struggling with profit. The vast majority of businesses I invest in, that's the first thing we tackle. Second is the owner out. And third is the overlap. And those are usually the three horsemen. Usually one alone will put the business on momentum for fast growth. The combination, usually they're no longer in the brink of success, they're in success. So that's so fascinating. Yeah, Vern Harnish, who wrote The Rockefeller Habits, he had a similar idea. It kind of like crossovers with your second diagnosis there, the owner out, the queen bee role and clockwork. I almost yeah. feel like a lot of times the owner becomes the queen bee. That's right. And and then they hire like accoutrement around them. Like Correct. basically, they never backfill the most important thing. They just backfill everything else. Correct. That's why I regret a little bit using queen bee role. It's very paritable. People come up to me regularly and say, oh, what's the QBR? But they forget the R, role part. They say, I, they literally say, I'm the queen bee. I'm like, no, you're not. Right. You're not. <laughs> yeah. You know, <laughs> get that bumblebee suit off you. It's the role. And as long as you see yourself as the queen bee, we got a business that'll struggle because you ain't producing eggs and the colony's dying. We got to get you out, but we do have to identify what that role, that function is, which is, you know, the laying of the eggs. In our final few minutes here, I'd love if you could share anything you're willing to about your current empire as an influencer. How do you guys make money? How did you come upon it? I'm so fascinated. I love writing books. I love reading them. Oh, that's awesome. I also have memberships and events and stuff. And I see you as an inspiration for my career. So I'm curious if you could just tell us a little bit about how you came upon this idea. Yeah, sure. Becoming sure. a business influencer, you're the original influencer, man. And uh, <laughs> how do you build an empire around a profitable business around your words? I think that's yeah. really inspiring. I don't know if I use empire. I say pimple. We're a business pimple. <laughs> Here's a lot of it has come out through. I wouldn't say trial and error necessarily. There's been a planning, but this wasn't preordained or, or scheduled. So the first thing is. I write books. And the reason I write books is, admittedly, I'm trying to figure out what I don't understand about entrepreneurship, which is basically most of it. The end lesson for me has been, what I teach is what I most need to learn. So when I wrote Profit First, because I didn't understand how to be permanently profitable. My new book, it's about managing teams. I felt I was good. I think now I sucked and I'm better. And I'm trying to learn how to be extraordinary. And maybe I'll never get there. So every book I write, I'm teaching, I'm learning, and I'm sharing the best way I learned because I hope it expands and helps other people. Second thing with our business pimple is every book I write, I seek out a partner or a licensee and say, there's going to be a faction of people who read the book who want to know that they're doing it right and they want guidance. 
do you want to partner with this? I don't run those businesses. What I'm trying to be is really good at one thing. I want to be the best author in the world that I can be. And to serve the greater community, I need partners. So for Clockwork, Adrian Dorison happens to be the person who bought the license and she has the global rights for teaching it and expanding it. So when people read the book and they're like, oh, I need someone to help me clock my business, yeah. I call up. Call up, run Adrian. like clockwork and, and the book will funnel you there. So when you read the book, they'll say, if you want to go a step further, go there. And I'd say it's about less than 1% of readers, but more than one-tenth of 1%. Somewhere in there, someone reads a book, says they want to consume it. The final stage if there's a three-layer model, is certain people say, I want Mike specifically. And I'm like, dude, I got nothing better, probably worse than anyone else. But there's this compulsion because there's an unfair and inappropriate assignment of authority. Ordinary person, extraordinary job. But people are making this correlation saying, oh, extraordinary person. Not the case. But it's hard to dissuade people. So I said, what can I do to be involved with people and support them? Because it's kind of a placebo effect. If they believe that to be true, even though it's not, they will perform better. So I started a group called Prosper Group where we're investing in companies. We're taking a piece of the action saying, I'm going to bring in my team. And it's the exact same people. It's Adrian Dorison and other people that we bring in, but it's just yeah. under my tutelage, if you will. And that's been extraordinary. That's growing the quickest. Is It's effectively tackling those three horsemen You're right. and spending time in these businesses. But I think the big allure to it is we don't charge a fee for it. We just share in the profitability. So it's got to win. And we only do it for five years. Like we're going to fix you for five years and we're going to turn the keys back to you. So this is going to be a quick race in getting. But you're going to keep the equity and the distributions indefinitely. We know. We, we, yeah. Equity, all the distributions after five years, we return everything to them. It's done. Oh, wow. And uh, the reason we did this, I've had investors in my businesses. And I remember after five years or seven years writing massive yeah. checks out to these guys and I wasn't getting any more value. And it's painful. And it's yeah. fair. It's painful for a small business. Yeah. So I said, I, I want what I wanted. So we structured this. It's working very well. It's become, I don't call it like a race. I call it like that speed walking at the Olympics, that awkward walk. Like we got to start <laughs> quick, but we're going to keep going. And that's what we do with our, our folks. Uh, Mike Michalowicz, we appreciate you stopping by the Tropical MBA podcast. And we uh, appreciate all this time you spend writing these amazing books. Oh, Dan, this has been fun. Thanks for having me, man. Likewise. Hey, thanks for listening to the Tropical MBA podcast. You can go to tropicalmba.com, get access to hundreds of back episodes and all kinds of other goodies. Load up your iPod. That is the cheapest way to fly business class on your next international flight. We will see you next Thursday morning, 8 a.m. Eastern Standard Time.